LinkedIn News. Conflict is really an opportunity for connection and closer connection. It's not something to be shunned or really avoided, you know, and it's not something to be feared. It's really the way in which we sharpen our ability to love. We're all human. We all make mistakes. None of us is perfect. And we try to be the best people we can. Sometimes we're not. By trying to understand each other's internal worlds relative to whatever position they have in that conflict, there's going to be greater understanding of one another, greater closeness comes from understanding, and greater compassion. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hey everyone, from LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, and this is Everyday Better, a self-improvement podcast where every week I sit down with some of the world's brightest minds and bravest hearts to learn how we can improve ourselves, our relationship to others, and the world around us. Welcome back to The Better Blueprint for Your 2024. And if you missed our other episodes, go back and check them out. This week is all about relational health. We are diving into something that none of us get to escape, which is conflict. As a recovering conflict avoider, my hope is to give you a clearer understanding of what conflict is and how to approach it better. And who better to do this than my favorite top relationship researchers, authors, and couple, John and Julie Gottman. They are the power couple behind the new book, Fight Right. And let me tell you, they've got some eye-opening insights they're going to share with us today. So we are all familiar with those tiffs at home or the occasional office spat. And the Gottmans are here to show us how these moments aren't just hurdles we have to get over or trudge over. They're actually really valuable opportunities to build stronger bonds with your family, your partner, your colleagues, and even with yourself. So we're talking about the real difference first between pointing a finger and raising a concern when you are in conflict and how this simple shift can change the game both at home and at work. By the way, it's called a criticism versus a complaint. You will also totally have your mind blown by their thoughts on constructive criticism at work. Get ready to find out what they think about that. And you're going to learn about the three styles of handling conflict. Trust me, this is going to make you see your next disagreement in a totally different light. So whether you are aiming to keep the peace at home or get out of a rut with a coworker, there is something in this conversation for you. And I just love these two so much. So here are John and Julie Gottman on how to fight right. First of all, conflict in relationships occurs because they're different brains, in fact. They have different lifestyle preferences. We have different personality characteristics. And when those come up against each other as part of making a decision, conflict is the inevitable result. But conflict actually can be a way to deeply understand our partner as opposed to criticizing our partner and putting them down, which really fails. 
So our conflicts are coming up because we are just different humans, which reminds me of that article that became popular, I think, in 2017 by Hélène de Botton, which is basically like settling for the good enough relationship. And he says in his talk, none of us are compatible. So is that why conflict happens? Is that we're all looking for a perfect match that thinks about life the same way we do and does everything the same way we do? I think that's true. The good enough relationship is a really important goal because our romantic ideas about having a soulmate is completely a misguided concept because if you actually could clone yourself and marry yourself, you would find that person very uninteresting. You wouldn't be attracted to that person. We're not attracted to our clone. We're attracted to something mysteriously different and wonderful. And then if we try to turn that person into us, we get into conflict that is really not functional. Instead, as Julie mentioned, conflict can be an opportunity for closer connection. So when you say that conflict also then predicts the future of our relationships, can you tell me about that? Is that about being willing to walk into conflict? Is it about being really good at conflict? What's the, what's the angle there? You know, what we found when we brought couples into the lab, hooked them up to various measuring instruments like heart rate, how much they jiggled in their chair. We videotaped them. We recorded, of course, the content of what they were saying. And then all of that was synchronized and analyzed and really explored. What we found is that the dynamics of conflict are extremely important in terms of predicting the future of a relationship. So let's talk about what we mean by dynamics. How does our partner feel and respond when we express a complaint or bring up a problem in a particular way. The way that we first begin a conflict, the first three minutes of it, predicts not only how the relationship will go, it predicts the conversation and how the relationship will go with 90% accuracy. The first three minutes. The first three minutes, that's right. So let me point out with an example. If I say to John, God, you're such a slob. Why do you always leave the kitchen a mess? That predicts demise. Because why? I'm blaming the problem on a personality flaw that I think John has. That's called criticism. Now listen to the difference. Honey, you know, the kitchen is pretty messy right now. Mm and it's upsetting to me, mm. I would really love it if you would please do the dishes in the next hour. Oh, okay. Could you yeah. do that? I can, yeah, I, I can. See the difference? There was no putting him down. I said what I felt, which was upset, about what? I described the situation. The kitchen is a mess. And then I shared with John what my positive need is. And a positive need means how can your partner shine for you? Not tell them to stop doing something, but instead ask your partner to do something that would really make you feel better. That's called a positive need. And I expressed that to him. And it was very easy for him to hear it because there was no criticism. So it's a positive need, but it's also about how we separate the person and the experience we're having of the situation. Right. Yeah, that's right. You know, in other words, what we're doing is we're describing our internal world, 
our internal world is composed of our feelings and our perception of the situation, as opposed to describing the other person, which inevitably is going to sound critical. So let's just say we've gotten into conflict. We haven't done this separation of person situation. We haven't given this positive thing. We're in the midst of a crazy morning or we're stressed out and we just don't accomplish this. First of all, we're all human, which means we're flawed, which means we make mistakes, which means on a bad day, we can be more critical. We might even call our partner a bad name if we're really in a terrible mood. I get there sometimes, or we get really flooded. We go into fight or flight because we're so angry or upset. If we make a mistake, and it's not even if, it's more like when we make a mistake, the masters of relationship make a repair, and they make a repair as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. So what do I mean by that? Let's say you've had a regrettable incident, and it's awful, and you still have this sick feeling inside from it, let's say a day later. You bring it up to your partner, and you say, Honey, can we have a conversation about what happened yesterday during that talk we had? Because I still feel really awful about it. Then you talk about what you felt during the conversation. You talk about your own reality, what you perceived. I heard you say that I was a rat. I saw this <laughs> angry look on your face. I saw you walk out of the room. I imagined you couldn't stand me. Now listen to all the eyes. I thought, I saw, I heard. Doesn't mean that's what really happened. It means that's what I perceived. And your partner then, if it's really a good conversation, your partner may summarize what they just heard you say to make sure they understood your perception. Then it's their turn to say what they experienced, you listening, summarizing for them, talking also about what maybe got triggered for you. We all carry triggers. Triggers are old experiences that were very negative and happened long before this relationship ever began. Could be a feeling of abandonment, of fear of being rejected, of being judged. Could be all kinds of stuff that we went through as kids or young adults. And those buttons get pushed again in this conversation. Well, each of you bring up what may have gotten triggered inside you, what old feeling got triggered and where it came from that intensified things for you, intensified your feelings. After that, you're going to have much better understanding of the impact of the conversation you had yesterday on your partner, and you will have had a chance to explain your own perception. Then you take responsibility for your part in it. That's very important. Mm. And you apologize. Now, notice how late the apology comes. Apologies right after something happens really don't work. They don't. Right? Because yeah. you have no idea of what you're apologizing for. You haven't heard the impact of what happened on your partner. You need to hear that first. Then you're apologizing for something that's real. So after each of you owns responsibility, 
and then apologizes. Finally, you talk about how can we avoid this from happening in the future? You make a plan. And that's a fabulous repair. You all talk about the fact that in conflict, we all have conflict cultures or a style that is avoidant, validator, and volatile. Can you talk a bit more about that? Yeah. Most people think conflict is really a bad thing. It's unpleasant. And they want to avoid it entirely. And so a very common way of dealing with conflict is to minimize it or put it down or think it's really poisonous in the relationship. So, and that's a conflict avoider. And some conflict avoiders actually think that talking about feelings is really destructive. And that kind of avoidance a lot of times runs into trouble, even if both people want to avoid conflict, because a wedge forms between people and it creates this distance that can eventually lead people to feel pretty lonely. Other conflict avoiders actually only avoid persuasion. So they're okay talking about how they feel, but they just don't want to convince the other person that they're wrong and, you know, you're right. So they don't ever do the persuasion. They just agree to disagree. And that can be a very functional approach to conflict if both people do that. So conflict avoidance is not necessarily bad. The thing that really makes the difference is what's the ratio in a conflict conversation of positivity to negativity. And if that ratio is five to one or bigger, then conflict avoidance is fine. People turn out okay. The other two are validators and people who are volatile. And validators are people who actually are pretty good at talking about a conflict. They bring up their feelings. They bring up their needs in a calm, way, and they look to being rational to find a solution. So they're not going to get very big and emotional, but they're quite good at simply stating what's going on for them and then listening as well to their partner. There's a bit of persuasion going on, but it's not pounding, you got to listen to me, gosh dang it, persuasion. That we see in volatiles. And volatiles are people who are very emotional, intense. They experience things with a lot of intensity. And they are more likely to get upset, maybe to get angry, to cry during a conflict in which their voices may get louder. They may get more passionate. I had one guy who spoke very intensely in a conflict, and he said, I'm going to speak passionately. He's <laughs> falling into that. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That was our situation. So the volatiles start with persuasion. The avoiders avoid persuasion entirely, and the validators do persuasion once they understand their partner's point of view. So where do they put persuasion in the discussion is what distinguishes the three styles the most. Mm. And if they're matched with one another, a volatile with a volatile, an avoider with an avoider, and they have a ratio, positive to negative ratio, greater than five or equal to five, then they're fine. Yeah. Let me explain what we mean by the ratio, Leah. The five positives to one negative refers to what you say to your partner and how you respond to your partner. So very simple things can be considered positive. 
like if my partner tells me their complaint and I say, huh, really? That's positive because it signals I want to attend to what he's saying. Mm -hmm. And if I then bring up my own point of view without criticism or contempt, that also can be labeled as positive. Right. If I give a positive response to my partner, even more positive, like, wow, that's a really interesting thought. I never thought of that. Tell me more. Tell me more. That's positive. So it's these little bits of the conversation and, you know, I bet most of our audience can tell when something is positive or negative. Right. When you feel kicked in the gut, uh -huh. it's definitely negative. <laughs> uh -huh. When you feel like your shoulders are coming down a little bit, you're more relaxed, you're feeling a little more secure, then you're probably in the midst of a more positive conversation. Mm -hmm. So the ratio of five to one means during a conflict conversation, really functional, healthy couples will have five positive exchanges for every one negative exchange. And a negative, of course, is something like criticism or telling your partner they're ridiculous, uh, putting them down in some way or just ignoring what they're saying. So, you know, I veer much more toward the avoidance style, though I have come a long way. I had to take the time to really work on and practice showing up in conflict and just trying to, like, keep myself in a center position because my experience of conflict historically or growing up was conflict leads to endings. Also, that conflict was about raised voices because you're talking about volatility. I'm like, I've definitely seen some of that. We all see it somewhere in our families and our experiences, our relationships. We're thinking about where we fall. What can we do to start practicing getting closer to, actually, I don't know, which one is the one we want to be in? Or is it that we're just trying to get from like a zero to a 10 in the category of avoidant? <laughs> yeah, I don't think you need to change categories right. necessarily. I think you can do really excellent conflict management within every single category. So here are some of the steps to get closer to what ideal conflict looks like, even as an avoider. The first thing you have to do is identify what you feel. And for some people, that's really hard to do. To go inside yourself, go inside your heart, sometimes your gut, and really ask yourself, how do I feel about this? If you were to give one word, is it sad? Is it angry, afraid, anxious, frustrated? Words like that. So you want to identify what you feel. That's very important about a particular issue. And secondly, and this is really hard, <laughs> given our culture, where Everybody is supposed to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, and nobody is supposed to have any needs. Needs are like a dirty word. Wrong. We are pack animals. We need each other. We depend on each other. If we are not connected to one another, then we grow lonely, and in fact, we grow sick, and we die. We need connection, and part of how we get connection 
is by expressing what we do need so our partner knows us better and can be there for us with the kind of love we're really hoping to experience with that person. They won't know how to express their love towards you in a way that's really meaningful unless you tell them who you are. And who you are, in part, is what your inner needs are. So it's a great thing to say what you need. It's not bad at all. I love this. So it's understanding who we are and what's going on for us. It's also realizing nobody can read our minds, which I think is like such a big mistake we all make is like this person should be able to know exactly what I need because they are my partner. They should know everything's going on in my head. And we all know that's not true. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so I'm thinking about intersection. You two work together. You've been married for how many years? 36. 36 years. So when you think about the intersection of interpersonal relationships, work and conflict, what do you see in your own experience and in the clients you all work with? First of all, Stress from work, when people are not working together, when they're going to their jobs and then they're coming home and they've had a hard day, they're stressed out, they've had to deal with traffic, whatever it is, it's very likely that some of that stress will spill over into the relationship and people may turn crappy, grouchy, and manifest that towards their partner. And then the partner is going, hey, what'd I do? Why are you yelling at me? So one of the things we have to be very conscious of is it's great to talk about work with your partner as a stress-reducing conversation rather than not sharing what happened at work and that stress spilling over into grouchiness with your partner. So a stress-reducing conversation means you tell your partner what was stressful for you at work, and your partner does not try to fix it because that can feel condescending. You are smart enough to have your own answers to problems at work. What you're really needing is somebody to care about what you experience and to show that care by listening and empathizing with what you felt during your workday. That's a good conversation. And then nobody feels alone. And that's the real stress reliever. It's not getting a solution to the problem. It's not feeling alone with the problem. So in our interpersonal relationships, where you've seen conflict is when we actually let stress from work bubble up without using our partner as an ear, basically a listening ear to support us and say, I hear you and I'm here for you. Yeah, that's the intersection between work, relationship, and conflict. Yeah, my colleague Bob Levinson did a really interesting study and wrote a paper called The Remains of the Day, where he studied male police officers and their wives for a month. And it turned out that the days that were very, very stressful for the police officer, there was a spillover of that stress. And it turns out if you handle that stress as a team, then the relationship really benefits from that conversation. And former postdoc of mine, Guy Bodenman in Switzerland, has developed a therapy based upon just that idea of coping with stress together as a team. And it turns out to be a very powerful thing to do. We're taking a quick break. We'll be right back with the Gottmans. But before we go to break, let's hear from our listeners on how they're planning to improve this year. 
Hi, my name is Alyssa from Pittsburgh, and in 2024, I aim to enhance my relationships by actively practicing empathy and effective communication. I plan to listen more attentively, understanding others' perspectives to strengthen our connections. I also want to encourage each other's personal growth and pursue shared dreams while also taking care of myself and not giving more than I can give. Hi, my name is Connor from Connecticut. In 2024, I'm going to work in the pursuit of my self-improvement, focusing on fostering a better relationship with myself, you know, self-care and mindfulness practices, embracing personal strengths and being compassionate towards my own flaws. And then by dedicating the time to my self-reflection, I really aim to build a stronger and more harmonious connection with the world and myself. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. uh, We'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back with the Gottmans. If you can't tell, I am loving this. So here we go. Let's jump back in. You know, many of us are work-oriented. Work is at the center of our lives. But on top of that, we want it to be, right? I love my work. My partner loves his work. Our producer, Alexis, was just saying how much she loves her work, right? And that's one of the center pieces of her life. There are points when you may or may not feel supported by your partner in this centerpiece. When I do the work I'm doing, I feel like I am purposeful. It feels important. It feels meaningful. It feels spiritual. It feels fulfilling. If there's a point where I don't feel supported by my partner in my challenges at work or even in celebrating, what can I do to shift that so that we can avoid conflict from that perspective? The problem sounds like this. You're wanting your partner to turn towards you when you talk about your work. And what that means is you want him to show that he's interested by asking you questions and big open-ended questions about your work, the concept of your work. Then dig even deeper. That's the way that we want our partners to respond. When your partner doesn't show their care about your work, show your care about theirs. It's not a one-way street. And if you can role model how to show interest, 
by asking those kinds of questions and really understanding your partner's internal world related to that work, your partner will pick up some ideas about how to do that with you. And if they don't, at the end of it, you can say, before you sweep up the leaves, honey, can I share with you something about my work? Because I would love for you to understand what makes it meaningful to me that may be invisible to other people. Not invisible to you, but invisible to other people. So that turning toward, Leah, is very powerful in a relationship in so many different ways, not only in moments where your partner may be upset or your partner may really need some kind of connection or want a conversation. And rather than ignoring it or getting irritable, if you actually turn toward your partner and listen and make yourself vulnerable too, so you can really feel the feelings that your partner is expressing, that can be a very powerful way of creating connection. And it has a big impact on conflict because what we discovered in the laboratory is that turning toward one another, even when you're not conflicting, when you're just talking about how your day went, gives each person a sense of humor about themselves during conflict. They can laugh at themselves. And that's a huge gift. I was terrible at laughing at myself for, for a very <laughs> long time. Thank God, I mean, my partner, is, he's hilarious and he always brings humor in. And so now I do that a lot more than I ever have. But one thing I used to do, and I've done this in friendships, in relationships, even at work, if the person didn't ask me, then I'm making the assumption that the moment has passed. And so I am not taking that initiative to say, can I share with you? And so then I take this feeling of I haven't been seen or I haven't been experienced or I haven't expressed with me, even though it was me who acted in a passive state. I was assuming they should be asking, they should be showing up with a powerful question instead of going, well, I can offer too. Let me just mention something. I noticed that you said the moment has passed. I've had times like that too, a fair amount. And what I'm aware of in myself is I'm not thinking about the moment that has passed. I'm thinking about, oh, they don't find me interesting. They don't care about learning about me. I must be boring. Um, they're not really valuing who I am. I must not be a valuable person, so I'll just shut up. Either that or um, if I ask them to do something that they don't want to do, they're going to resent me. And if they're not asking me questions, that must mean they don't want to ask me questions. That's an assumption. But the thing that John and I have really observed in our culture and in others as well is that we've forgotten how to ask questions, that we feel it's too intrusive to ask somebody a question rather than respecting people's Boundary. boundaries. And, <laughs> you know, if they're going to tell me something, well, they'll tell me something. I'm not going to ask them. Well, it doesn't work that way. That's not really how you build a relationship. The way you build a relationship is to ask each other questions. And the way that we can do that is by introducing the notion of asking each other questions throughout our relationship. Because the answers are going to change over time. As we evolve over time 
and change our own values, priorities, needs, feelings. So I'm thinking about my interpersonal relationships and wanting to make sure that I can create an environment or a culture within those relationships where we can both sit in conflict and get better at it as a skill or at conflict management as a skill. I also then can't help but think about how I am at work. So there are parts of me that have trained myself to show up in specific ways for challenging conversations, but I don't think there's that much of a difference between how I handle conflict or upset in the workplace versus when I'm at home, which is that I tend to probably still lean toward being avoidant. Do you notice that these styles or these cultures are the same at home and at work? Well, work tends to be much more of a conflict-avoiding environment. And people at work are reluctant to really talk about what they need and to appear needy. They want to be strong and independent (laughs) and not need anything at work. And they want to hide conflict when it exists and really avoid saying, look, you know, you and I have a difference of opinion and we seem to approach problems in a very different way. I'd like to understand you better and understand how you think about things so we can be better colleagues at work. So people tend to avoid conflict rather than really being curious about somebody who's very different from us. The other thing, too, about work, how many of us at work or in our own families have heard about constructive criticism. So conflict, I think, in our work culture equals constructive criticism. If we're going to bring up problem, we're thinking, oh, gosh, you know, I'm going to tell the person what they're doing wrong and what's not okay about it. And they'll love that and, you know, want to have lunch with me the next week so I can tell them more. And they'll go, I love feedback. (laughs) Isn't feedback a lot of fun? We've discovered there is no such thing as constructive criticism. Criticism hurts. Criticism goes right to the core of somebody, no matter how trivial it may seem. And if it's going to the core of somebody, then what happens at work is that you're undermining their own self-esteem. And when people feel more anxious because they're afraid of being criticized, they're going to perform more poorly. When they are encouraged and perhaps gently directed down a different path regarding some piece of their work. But it's done with, this would work really great. Remember that concept of telling your partner what will shine for you. Same thing with our colleagues, our employees, sometimes even our employers. We need to be a little bit more transparent about the positive direction we want from a colleague, and they may say yes or no, that's okay, as opposed to that constructive criticism model that has just shattered work cultures in almost every corporation. Wow. I've never heard there's no such thing as constructive criticism. That's like a mind-blowing, oh, wait a minute. Hallelujah. (laughs) Correct. Okay, so when I think about constructive criticism, my mind then goes to the other end of the spectrum, which is this like fluffy, you know, you're amazing, you're a star, let's really amp that up. How do we hold the fact that we can slow down, 
that we can remove constructive criticism and we don't have to totally fluff things up to get our point across and to also work together better. One of the secrets here is trust. So if you're in a work environment where you feel trusted and you can trust your colleagues and your employer, then hearing ways in which you can improve is not threatening. It's really helpful. And if you create a culture that facilitates trust, then research has shown that that corporate culture is much more productive, much more creative. So that's the secret, is there has to be trust in the work environment. There are really good ways to bring up complaints or to bring up concerns with a colleague. One of them is saying what you observed your colleague do. So you're just describing the situation. And it's not said in a critical way. And then you say, help me understand what was happening for you. Yeah. So the difference between criticism and complaints is very simple. Criticism is when you're blaming a particular problem on a personality flaw of the other person. So criticism is you're so lazy, you're thoughtless, you're inconsiderate, mm -hmm. um, you're never, always and never tend to be criticisms because they imply a personality flaw. Complaint, on the other hand, is expressing something that you personally are unhappy about. You're not describing your partner, you're describing yourself with the complaint. You're bringing up your own perceptions of the situation that's making you unhappy and then asking for something to change, right? That's that positive need. And a lot of vulnerability in a complaint as yes, well. Yes, right. So notice that we talked about, you know, what does a conflict-avoiding person do in order to get better and better at conflict? Well, they have to know their feelings. But also, what really helps is once you know your feelings, you need to express your feelings, right? Say what you feel. So when you describe yourself, you're not describing your partner's character flaws. You're describing your own feelings about what? Not about who, that is what's wrong with your partner, but about what situation, and then saying what you need. So I love the differentiation and what you're bringing me back to is something I want to clarify here, whether it's at home, with friends, at work. I, I think trust gets really confused by people. I don't trust him. I don't trust them. I don't trust her. Is trust on us, on someone else, or both? And how can we improve trust? Trust is not an on-off switch. It's not where you either trust somebody or you don't trust somebody. It's a spectrum. And the way I like to think of it is in concentric circles. If you imagine a little circle in the center, those are the intimate people in your life who you feel like you can confide anything to and they can confide in you. Those are the best friends. Then there's a circle around that little circle that might be good friends. You trust them up to a point, but you also know there's a few things that you probably wouldn't wanna share with them. 
Another circle outside of that is just friends. So people you do stuff with, you go to the movies, you take a walk, you talk some, but there's not the deepest intimate trust. Then there's acquaintances, then there's strangers. So trust is this spectrum that you build, and you build it by seeing how does that person respond when I'm sick, when I'm depressed, when I want to celebrate, how do they respond? That's how we build trust bit by bit. I mean, trust is such a big topic, right? So if we're looping this back to the conversation of fight right, trust and conflict, how do they play together? And what do you have to say about those two things when it comes to fighting right? Yeah, this concept of psychological safety in a relationship, feeling the relationship is a safe haven where you can really be yourself and be fully accepted by your partner. And that trust really means that you're not being evaluated by your partner. Your partner's not saying, is this the best I can do? Maybe there's another relationship out there that will be a better alternative. Your partner doesn't think that way. Your partner's thinking, I really cherish so many things about my partner. I feel very lucky to be here. And when there's that sense of psychological safety and acceptance in a relationship, then conflict has a very different character. It's not about evaluating your partner. It's about trying to understand your partner. Even if your partner is critical and says, you're so lazy or you're so selfish, the masters of relationship that we studied in our lab say, that's interesting that you feel that way. Mm -hmm. Tell me more about how you see me even if your partner is critical, and they respond non-defensively. So if you were to sum up what you want people to understand about conflict and fighting with this new book and your work, what is it? I would say that, it, that conflict is really an opportunity for connection and closer connection. It's not something to be shunned or really avoided, you know, and it's not something to be feared. It's really the way in which we sharpen our ability to love. I would emphasize we're all human. We all make mistakes. None of us is perfect. And we try to be the best people we can. Sometimes we're not. So conflict occurs. It may occur when we have very different positions about something. It may occur when one of us has made a mistake, the other person doesn't like that mistake. So conflict is inevitable. But John is absolutely right. By trying to understand each other's internal worlds relative to whatever position they have in that conflict, there's going to be greater understanding of one another, greater closeness comes from understanding, and greater compassion. All right, I'm going to have you all complete these three statements. I could have you on forever. We could talk for another hour. Oh, Leah, uh, let's I, oh, do it. Come on, then. You're a great interviewer, Leah. Oh, You're thanks. So it's so fun. I love talking to you, too. Okay, so, Julie, better humans are? Aware of always needing to grow and change. John, better work is? I think it's really understanding the meaning of what you're doing and always questioning that meaning and expanding it. And I'll have you both answer this one. A better world has, and Julie, I'll have you go first. Has much more dialogue. We are disconnected from one another 
and disconnection causes loneliness, distance, and war. We need to talk, open our mouths and talk to one another much more regularly and consistently. John? A better world has more compassion and justice. Thank you so much, both of you. I hope we can do this again at some point soon. Let's do it. Let's do it every year, at least. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That sounds great, Leah. Thank you. We really enjoyed this. It was wonderful. That was John and Julie Gottman, top relationship researchers and authors. Their book is called Fight Right, How Successful Couples Turn Conflict into Connection. You can find our first conversation, which I loved, in the show notes below. One big thing before we go. It's clear that conflict isn't just an obstacle to overcome or something to avoid. Conflict is a necessary and unavoidable part of relationships. What we can do, though, is change how we approach our conflict, change how we think about our conflict, to shape it into something that strengthens and deepens our relationships. So the next time you find yourself in a disagreement, whether you're at work or at home, remember that the path to resolution is not about winning or losing. It's really about understanding, it's about accepting, and it's about growing together. And for my fellow conflict avoiders out there, yes, conflict is messy and it can stir up some really tough emotions. But I promise you there is much more to gain than there is to fear if you reframe conflict as an opportunity to get closer and follow the Gottman's guidance. If this conversation resonated with you, share it with the first person who comes to mind. You never know how it could help them out. And support other people like you in finding our show by leaving us a rating before you go. While you're at it, write a one-sentence review telling me and the team what you love about Everyday Better. And as always, you can find me on LinkedIn writing about human potential and meaningful living. Everyday Better is a production of LinkedIn News. The show is produced by Alexis Ramdow. Asaf Gijron is our sound engineer. He makes sure we sound good in the studio. Joe DiGiorgi mixed our show. Enrique Montalvo is the executive producer of LinkedIn Editorial Productions. Dave Pond is head of news production. Courtney Coop is head of LinkedIn Original Audio and Video. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn, and I'm Leah Smart. Thanks for coming with me, and I'll see you next week.